You're listening to Future Sense, and I'm Steve McDonald. In this episode, I'm interviewed by Howard Blott, host of the UK-based Ascension Cafe podcast, and we're discussing the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on human evolution. Thanks for making time to uh, be on the show for this episode, because um, I've been really excited to have you on for a lot of reasons. But one notable reason was the presentation that you gave back in Zurich at the Elevate conference in 2018 that made such a massive impression on me and the way I was making sense of what was happening back then. But now we're in 2020 and it really feels like we're in the midst of kind of the essence of that phase shift that you were talking about back then. So I'd love to kind of get your perspective on current events initially and also kind of what led you into that work of uncovering the work of Claire Graves, because that's... Um... Sure. So from the perspective of that work I spoke about in Zurich, which is the research of Dr. Claire W. Graves, and it's essentially a developmental psychology model showing how human consciousness moves through various stages or layers, and each one of those has its own discrete worldview. In fact, even deeper than that, it has its own discrete way of making sense of reality, uh, I believe, and uh, its own set of values, its own particular motivations, etc. And we are at the end of the scientific industrial era, which equates to layer five values on Graves' model. So we can, using his model, which was the result of the study of individuals. However, uh, Graves realized at one point that the, the stages or layers that individuals grow through as they develop also reflect the eras of the evolution of humanity from sort of hunter-gatherers to tribal to warlike to agricultural, etc. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of like a fractal pattern that he's discovered there that applies it seemingly at all scales for humanity. And looking back, we can see uh, the progression through those different eras that I've just mentioned and into the the scientific industrial era. And each one of those eras has lasted, each successive one has lasted for a shorter time than the previous one. So we were hunter-gatherers for quite a long time, maybe, I don't know, 100, 150,000 years or something. Mm -hmm. And we can look back to some markers at the beginning of the scientific industrial era such as the industrial revolution the scientific revolution and see that this one has only really lasted about 300 years in full flight you know you can trace the early stages of it further back in history than that but in terms of it really becoming the dominant global paradigm it's only really been about 300 years or so right and uh, we can see that the systems and even the, the systems that have been designed during this era and even the things that have been invented, which didn't exist before, like stuff like corporations, for example, and nation states, which didn't exist before the scientific industrial era, um, those things seem to be struggling to maintain themselves in the midst of a complexity that has arisen. Mm-hmm. And we seem to be on this... Uh, as as far as we know, this spectrum of increasing complexity. And and that complexity comes from all of our life conditions, so our natural environment, both on and off the planet, because we are influenced by a lot of things that come from off the planet, such as sunshine and cosmic radiation. Mm -hmm. And also, we create complexity ourselves by inventing new technologies, uh, such as the internet, for example. Mm. So you can look at the, the early waves of the next paradigm, which Graves called relativistic, the sixth layer in his model. Some people have named it postmodern. And you can see that going back at least as far as the mid-1800s, we started to see the emergence of human rights groups focused on things like women's rights and uh, racial uh, equality and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And there have been successive waves that have sort of flared up between then and now, including particularly the the sort of late 1960s, early 1970s, where there was the big sort of flower power 
revolution and the anti-war movement and all those sorts of things which do reflect this emerging set of values from layer six and although those things were beaten down by the dominant scientific industrial paradigm back in the 70s with things like the war on drugs for example mm. and changes to other various laws they didn't go away they continued to bubble away under the surface and now you know since then we've seen a couple of successive waves and this one that we're experiencing now feels to me like it's it's going to be the wave that reaches the high tide mark and actually ushers us into the next dominant paradigm being this six layer uh, that Graves described. So and this, this, this it, new this new paradigm, this is the decentralized one, right? Yes, that's right. So there are there are a number of different themes that we can talk about. Uh, mm -hmm including decentralization, relocalization of resourcing and those sorts of things. And if we think about that, sh that phase shift process, so in other words, the change process that occurs between the, the paradigms, uh, that takes us from stability in the old paradigm into a period of stress and then eventually into a period of chaos where the structures and belief systems associated with the old paradigm start to fall apart and don't function properly. And then inevitably there's a, a breakthrough at some point, which is a tipping point that tips us over into the new paradigm starting to flourish and becoming dominant. And it, it, you know, no one really knows exactly where we're at on that uh, phase shift journey but my best guess is that we have been in the stress part of it for some time with the old uh, systems like economic systems political systems you know creaking at the seams mm. um, and this what's happening right now this COVID-19 event which is a clearly a global event and you know unprecedented considering the technologies that we have and the capacity that we have for global coordination, it's certainly unprecedented in those terms. Yeah. Uh, and this, this seems to me to be like the entry point to a period of increasing chaos or disruption that will take us through to that tipping point that I mentioned. And my best guess at this point is I'm, I'm seeing 2032 is emerging as a very, very significant tipping point. And that okay. may well be, that's my best best guess of when we start to tip over into this new layer of consciousness becoming the dominant global paradigm in terms of the predominance of its systems and decentralization and those sorts of things. Interesting. Because this is this is this has been a topic of a lot of my conversations with people recently about these kind of two timelines that humanity seems to be straddling at the moment where one is that we move towards this decentralized more free society and then we have this kind of other one where they're trying to lock us down with um central bank digital currencies and social credit scoring but it just seems like that plan's ultimately doomed to fail but i know i do sense a lot of fear out there surrounding that possibility like i'd be interested to hear what your perspective on that is yeah, uh, I agree, certainly agree with what you're saying. Uh, just to add to the, the complexity of the understanding, when we go through the shape, this phase shift process, that is the, the change journey between the paradigms, one of the things that happens is that there's a regressive value search. So that comes about when people realise that, okay, the way that we've been living, our political systems, our economic systems are really not working. So we need to find better systems and because we can't see into the future mm -hmm. what we naturally do as humans is we think back to a time when things were better and and this is what is called a regressive value search where we go back and we try on the old values just to see if they might fix the problems because they used to fix the problems back then <laughs> and so what that shows up as in in life is people going back to older rigid value sets in this case most likely the agricultural values which were very black and white, very religious in their nature. Uh, they deferred to a higher authority to give you uh, instructions on how to live, basically. Mm. And th this is why we're seeing the rise of uh, right-wing politicians, hardliners, and those sorts of things. So in the midst of the transition from the scientific industrial to the relativistic, 
we're also seeing a flare up of the previous value set, which is the the agricultural, which is layer four in, in Graves' model. And that's part of the reason why it's so confusing, because to a lot of people, it looks like the whole world's going backwards. And in a sense, part of it is going backwards to those old values to try them out once again and just see if they'll work. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and this is like what you were referring to in your presentation, where it's like a slingshot. So like that regression yes. is kind of building that evolutionary tension that's going to ultimately propel us forward to the next. Exactly, system. exactly. Just like pulling a rubber band backwards on a slingshot, you know, you're pulling it in the opposite direction to which you want the projectile to go. And in the process, you're creating tension that's actually going to drive the change when when the tipping point comes, the release point. Yeah. Right. No, that, make, that makes total sense. It's, it's really fascinating um, to see how this is showing up in my own life now at the moment, more so since the coronavirus situation, because I know. now people are losing their losing their jobs and getting worried and starting to think about, hey, how can we band together and um, live more sustainably, which is actually quite a cool thing to see happening. Obviously, the pain of people losing their jobs sucks, but I think what that's going to pave way for in terms of collaboration is going to be amazing. I, I do too, and it's amazing for me as well. You know, I discovered Greg's work in 2003 and pretty quickly realized that, okay, this is actually a map to the future. It's showing us, you know, human values of the future and the sequence in which they'll emerge and to be actually living through you know that transition happening right now and and watching it happen it, it's absolutely amazing and very informative as well uh, just yeah. looking at some of the things that are happening something that's really interesting which i did not expect at all is how mainstream values, and I'm thinking particularly about government here in Australia, which has been a sort of a centre-right government, quite mm -hmm. anti-socialist policies, uh, all of a sudden start putting social policies into play as a result of, of COVID-19, which is quite remarkable. And, you know, to see such a quick shift is pretty interesting. And I don't for a moment think it, it's a permanent shift, but right. it, ref it reflects a realization that the most obvious answer to our problems at the moment is actually a more social answer, you know, a more social solution. It, it's what that's what's required. So it's just fascinating to see that kind of alignment, you know, all heading towards the evolutionary sort of destination. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like I do, I do, I do hear a lot of people talking about how UBI and things like that are going to be required, especially with increasing automation and all of that. I guess the the shadow side of that would be it becoming a conditional UBI and the authorities using it as leverage over the population to kind of coerce them in one way or the other. But I know yeah. there's, as well as you do, there's, there's going to be decentralized alternatives to that model, which would mitigate that, right? Yeah, um, it's a really good reminder that you know the the systems themselves or the tools that we apply actually don't have any morality about them you know it's the people who design them and the people who put them into place and control them they're the ones who express the morality and sure uh you know that that's interesting to remember that often what looks like a wonderful idea from one perspective can actually be a horrible idea from another perspective you know and yeah. that, you know, universal basic income is one of those examples where uh in the wrong hands they could say well you haven't had your vaccine so you're not going to get yeah. your bread money this week you know simple things like that and, exactly. and that's actually happened uh, to a small extent here in australia with children where the government has said unless you vaccinate your children they can't get uh entry into a school you know into into most schools so it's a that's a pretty great example of that kind of thing actually yeah. happening here in Australia well, already. They, they, they've basically done that in Germany since November last year. Um, you can't send your kid to school unless it's been vaccinated. But it's yeah. also illegal. It's also illegal to homeschool. So it's basically a mandatory vaccine vaccination policy. That that's yeah, a, that's a whole other that's a whole other chest to open that. <laughs> I, I know it is. Yeah, and I and I'm certainly not anti vaccines, but uh, you know, like many things in society, the the profit-driven uh, success motivation that exists, in, you know, in so many different organisations has skewed 
many, many things, including healthcare, mm. so that they no longer actually serve the end user, they serve the, the shareholders. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, and I think, um, you know, some some vaccines are certainly in that category, I think. Yeah, yeah I, I, th- I, think it, I think it's a good position to take to not be just hardline anti-vaxxer. I think it's more a case of saying, weigh each vaccine on its own merits, um, but also be yeah. aware that vaccines are a good vector for institutional abuse so we have to be vigilant and exactly exactly and and that's going to be the the story for the next few years you know where we're in a a place now where um things are beginning to fall apart more and fairly quickly and there'll be this tug of war there is this tug of war already going on between the old paradigm and the new paradigm folks yeah. uh, some, some who want to pull us back and put us under more control and keep us under the old systems and some who are trying to pull us forward into the future yeah yeah absolutely it's it's yeah. funny because um i don't know if you listen to noah lampert's podcast it's called synchronicity podcast and He's been, he's been getting people writing in saying about how they're feeling great since the corona pan- pandemic started and i'm one of the people that definitely falls into that camp despite it being a rough time on certain fronts i do feel more at ease since this chaos has started to emerge and i'm wondering if that's just because it's an acknowledgement that the old paradigm is really starting to fall away now and yeah i you know i totally recognize that myself and the really interesting thing about this time is that it doesn't matter what strategies the old paradigm thinkers come up with, they will by default push us towards the new paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know, anything that's structured around the old way of doing things is just not working very well anymore. And it's inevitably going to push us towards the future, which is really interesting. And and what's happening now, which, you know, could be seen on one hand as a, as a global house arrest, you know, control measure. Uh, on the other hand, it's uh, taking everybody out of the rat race at the same time yeah. and giving them lots of free time to sit and ponder the meaning of life and what they want to do in the future. So it's a gift, you know. It really in, is. In the, it, it really is, absolutely. Yeah, no, massive, massive blessing in the burden here, I think. I'm curious yeah. um, about how did you end up going down the route of studying Claire Graves' work? Because... It's not, it's not very often people end up going down the path of researching a researcher who didn't get to publish his research before he died, which is... Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, I guess just very quickly, my, my career has gone from entering the military at age 19 and being a professional army officer for about 15 years, roughly. Mm-hmm. And in the... In that process, I, w- I only went to one war, and that was in Somalia, Africa. And that was a country, it was, it was the southern half of Somalia, so I guess it was half a country in total collapse. Right. And to, and to be there for five months in a country where there was no government whatsoever, it completely collapsed. The control of the landscape had been fought over by a group of 20-something different clans commanded by warlords and the all of the utilities that you would normally expect a government to government to provide had collapsed um you know there was no running water there was no electricity and apart from people who had local generators um and and no garbage collection there was no sanitation all of these things weren't working Mm -hmm. So it was basically like the Wild West. It was like it descended, had descended into the Wild West. There was in the town where I was based for most of my time there, a town called Baidoa, there was a Coca-Cola factory in ruins. There was an agricultural college in ruins. There was a Fiat car factory in ruins. And just to get my head around the idea that a society could actually go backwards that much was really uh, eye-opening for me. Yeah, that- and and so that really stuck in my mind just that process of social change and and of course we went in there under the the command of a a larger military force to try and restore order and feed people and you know um help them get re-established we part of what we did while we were there was help them re-establish a a police and legal system in our local area um but on the on the second day that i was there i realized that 
this was a long, long-term problem that they had there and one that had been partially caused by the division of countries after World War II where some uh, guy in an office in, I don't know, London or somewhere drew some lines on a map in Africa <laughs> and in the, in the process, you know, cut a whole bunch of tribes in half and, and uh, you know, went against all of the pre-existing agreements about who lived where and what land they used and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I realized that as soon as we left, it was pretty much going to go back to the way it was. And that that's exactly what happened after the, the forces pulled out of Somalia and went back to the way it was. So that was a big lesson. And then um, I guess the be- the next big sort of milestone in my life was uh, I got out of the army. I ended up working as a rescue helicopter pilot for five years. And as a result of a whole series of different traumatic experiences, one of which happened in my early childhood, you know, a whole bunch happened when I was at war, and then a whole bunch happened during my time working as a first responder helicopter mm-hmm. pilot. Uh, I ended up suffering post-traumatic stress and depression, and I didn't understand what was happening to me. I became really hungry to understand how the mind worked, and so I started studying informally, just stuff I could find on the internet uh, about the brain and neuroscience and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that sort of was the start of the learning journey around, you know, what is this human mind? How does it work? Um, how can I change it? Because I'm not happy with mine at the moment because I'm not feeling well. Mm-hmm. And I eventually, I eventually started to work as a, a coach. Once I'd sort of gathered a few models together and I started to get an idea of how this they worked. Um, I started to work as a coach, working with people, helping them understand. And there was a spiritual aspect to this as well. Uh, I was married at the time, and my wife Simone is clairvoyant. Uh, she's my ex-wife now, but um, you know, the whole time that we were together, twenty-three years, and and she had this psychic gift. So that was a really interesting addition to my existence was mm-hmm. living with somebody who was psychic and could sometimes see into the future, you know, wow. and it made me, I guess it made me more likely to explore the spiritual world and the meaning of life and, you know, how do we create things in our life and why is it that some things that get foretold happen and other things don't, you know, those sorts of big questions. Mm-hmm. So um, I ended up uh, for, for very sort of natural and healthy reasons, uh, my marriage ended and we agreed that, you know, our time was up and we needed to go off on our own paths again. And I ended up in Melbourne, Australia, working as a management consultant mm-hmm. and specialising in change, in, in organisational change. Uh, and there was an element of personal change or personal development built into that. So that, that became my sort of full-time focus right. after I finished, finished flying. And... I, when I moved to Melbourne, I met a, a, a new acquaintance down there who'd grown up in Scotland and he had been exposed to gang culture in Scotland, in Glasgow, and had some experience with psychedelics as a, as a teenager. And he said to me one day that he really thought psychedelics could be useful for personal development. Mm-hmm. So... I tucked that away in the back of my mind and didn't do anything about it. Uh, I actually said to him at the time, I said, well, look, if you ever come across a chance where we can try them out, because I had never tried a psychedelic, uh, you know, let me know and maybe we can sort of just go into the experience with that question in our mind. Is this a, a tool that we can use for for personal development and, and waking people up from a spiritual perspective? And that same guy introduced me to the work of Claire W. Graves, through through a book that was written called Spiral Dynamics about Graves's work, uh, so so he was a you know he he was a pivotal influencer at that time in my life, and that's really how I discovered Graves's work. I bought the Spiral Dynamics book, and at the time that I bought it, uh, I was under a lot of stress because I my marriage had broken up. I'd moved into state, uh, you know, my finances had changed, my network of friends had been left behind, and I had a, a fairly big stress score, and I ended up. Uh, having a, a breakdown from post-traumatic stress in the second half of 2003, this was. Mm-hmm. And uh, two interesting things had happened around that time. So I'd, I'd got the Spiral Dynamics book and read it. So I had that idea in my mind of Claire Graves's model of the different worldviews that we grow through, of the, the phase shift process, the change journey that we experience as we move from one worldview world to the next. 
And another friend around that time had gifted me a book called Shamanism by uh, Mercia Eliad. And I was reading the shamanism book and I got up to the chapter called Initiatory Sickness. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had a, a breakdown and ended up in hospital. And and so oh, wow. after after a sort of a few days of rest in hospital and being able to, you know, trying to get my, my thoughts back in order again, it, just a light bulb came on and I thought, holy shit, I'm, this is happening to me, what I just read about in these books. <laughs> <laughs> and so... As difficult as it was at the time, and it was a very, very demanding experience, a very difficult experience for me, at some level, part of me was witnessing what was going on and going, yep, that's exactly what it said in the book. <laughs> so, wow. So that was a, a pretty huge life-changing experience for me in many ways. And so I, I basically... Uh, personally road tested the theories that I'd been reading in these books and I came out the other side nodding my head going you know that's that's right that's exactly what happened to me and that's exactly how I felt uh, and and that was really sort of cementing um, you know my ideas and my motivation to explore this further and to help other people understand this process as well so so that's really you know that was the entry point for me and I uh, I, within the next couple of years, uh, Don Beck, who was one of the authors of the Spiral Dynamics book, came to Australia and I attended a course, two courses actually, that he ran here in Australia. Uh, and then 12 months later, I flew to Texas and I did a more advanced training course over there that Don had organised as well. And then I came back to Australia and reoriented my consulting business to work primarily with this model that Claire Graves had put together. So I then road tested it in the corporate world. Amazing. Uh, by using it as a foundation for consulting and, and advice. And that was a, a very steep learning curve for me because I, I very quickly found that the jargon, the American jargon from this biodynamics book just did not cut it uh, with Australian audiences. Right. And I realized that I, I had to adapt to the language, you know, in order to be able to explain it to people here and, and use it. And so I went through a process of uh, like a, an action learning process or an action research process of um, adapting and changing how I delivered this information and how I asked people to apply it in the workplace. Uh, and, and I guess the pinnacle of those, those years was I did a, an intervention for the legal department of one of the major four banks here. Oh, wow. And they had, they flew their team from London and a couple of teams from different cities uh, in Australia into a retreat centre and we did a an immersive journey into this work. I did some one-on-one one -on -one assessments with the, the people attending and gave them, you know, sort of written evaluations based on Claire Graves' work. And then uh, we put together an action plan for them to take back into the workplace you know, around how they could capitalise on the capacities that they had within their team and and really use them, you know, to to their own personal benefit and the benefit of their team and the benefit of the larger organisation, the bank. And all of that happened just before the uh, 2008 global financial crisis. Wow. And uh, I got some feedback from the team leader after the, the financial crisis had sort of played itself out that they found it extremely valuable to have that experience under their belt. And part of that process was also talking to them about the nature of complex adaptive systems and the different functional parts that a viable system has. And of course, Claire Graves' model is really a, it's a complex adaptive systems perspective on human nature, from my point of view, at least anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a very useful framework. I'm, I'm intrigued how um, you're, you're able to take this now and give it to the corporate world as a useful kind of framework so they're not just kind of mindlessly going into the future, extracting more and more from the earth, but realizing that they're actually participants in this evolutionary process. And yeah, like there was, there was a point you um, made in your presentation that was talking about... Um, the market reports picking up this new globally so socially conscious consumer in, in, their, right. in their in their thing. So the market, I guess, is following this change in consciousness anyway, right? But I guess it's going to be... It, it is. Yeah. You know, 
it starts with the individual, of course. So there has mm-hmm. to be a there has to be development in the in the individual to the point where they are transitioning into this new worldview, basically. So that's a, a key driver, uh, and and then the you know the social products of that come from various individuals having their own journey and deciding that their values have changed and they want to focus on different things. Yeah. Yeah, I def- definitely that resonates with at least my journey for sure. And I guess many others are probably listening to this show. Um, I'm curious about the way we get towards this decentralized paradigm. Like I know blockchain or distributed ledger technology is going to play a role in this, but are there any other th- things or ways that you see us kind of, I don't know, tools in our belt, I guess, for kind of getting there? that you're aware of yeah i think another big one which is still in its early stages is 3d printing mm-hmm. which has the potential to revolutionize the entire manufacturing sector you know and there are huge implications for this uh, when you think about what we do at the moment where we you know, look at the stuff that you've got on the de- on your desk in front of you, and probably some of that stuff's made in China and a factory in China, and then it's shipped, you know, to the UK. Yeah. Uh, and think about all the energy that's involved in doing that in the the supply chain and the retail and the wholesale and the manufacture. Uh, and to be able to get something like that three D printed, perhaps in your own home, or if not, perhaps in a sort of an industrial three D printing shop in your local town. My goodness, that is going to change the world in big ways, absolutely yeah. big ways. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I can totally and remember. now we're, you know, even though it's still not a widespread technology, I, I mean, we're, we're already 3D printing houses and big stuff like that. So I, I think that uh, is another really obvious technology that's going to make decentralization much more practical. And it's also going to decrease the cost of living. I mean, when you don't have to, when you go and you know into a shop and you buy whatever it is you've got sitting on your desk there, and you don't have to pay for um, building the factory in China, and you don't have to pay for the, all of the transport that's in the supply chain, and you don't have to pay for the staff at the wholesalers, etc., etc., etc. I mean, my yeah. God, that's a huge change. Yeah, and it's going to make things super cheap. Yeah, definitely. And so, and so once the so again. I was just going to say, and, and these things are like threads that you can follow. So once you, you've got hold of the end of that thread and then you think about, okay, so if the cost of living goes down, what does that mean? You know, mm-hmm. uh, That means that we don't have to work as much to earn enough money to live for a week. And then we have spare time. What does that mean? Well, that means we can do other things like be creative, you know, spend time socializing, <laughs> whatever it is that we might want to do. But the you know, this thing, one thing leads to another is what I'm trying to say. Sure. And as we move into this um, new paradigm from the scientific industrial one, which is more individualistic, this more communal one, I guess people are going to start growing more of their own food in this crisis as supermarket shelves have started to become empty. And that's a good sign yeah. that the system isn't as reliable as we were led to believe, right? Yeah, exactly. And a big part of the driver during the first tier paradigm shifts uh, or movement between the layers, and when I say first tier, I'm talking about the first six layers in Graves' model, and uh-huh. they they make a set, and then you've got this huge leap, what Graves called a momentous leap to layer seven, uh, which is off the scale. It's like a quantum leap that's a bigger change than any of the previous changes have occurred. and. There's some evidence now pointing to the possibility that this actually could be a species transition to a new species. Um, but um, with, yeah, that, yeah, I know that's a very interesting uh, yeah. thought. <laughs> um, so just back to your question, when, when we make the transitions between the first six layers, there's a natural rejection dynamic that goes on there where we naturally want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So everything that came before, everything that was a product of the old paradigm, we want to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, understanding that, if you think about all the things that are wrong with our food provision at the moment, like the use of chemicals that are poisoning us, for example, yeah. uh, you know, and the, the packaging of 
and the processing of food, so it's hardly recognisable as food anymore. You know, these are all things that are also going to drive people to want to produce their own food locally, uh, if not grown themselves, then grown by someone local that they know and that they trust is not going to poison the food and, it's, you know, it's going to be fresh and, and yeah. Uh, nourishing, yeah. It, it makes so much sense. Like, we, we live on a farm here that we're kind of transitioning into more a more food-productive farm. Um, but something we've been experimenting with was can we grow citrus fruits here sustainably? And we're in our second year of that experiment. And the answer seems to be pointing towards yes. And when you think about cool. citrus fruits, like that production is centralized, at least in Europe, to very specific regions and putting massive stress on the environment. So um, that's mm. before we've even got to the added miles that it takes to ship them here and all the chemicals they have to put on just to preserve the integrity of the fruit. So yeah, um, we're, yeah. we're definitely going to see multiple benefits aside from the obvious environmental ones through this through this shift. So it's very, yeah, very, very interesting to see that playing out. Absolutely. And, and then you've got new farming technologies coming. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the use of AI in farming, for example, and, and uh, vertical farming and those sorts of things. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there was a, there's another curious piece because um, I visit your website occasionally and I've been watching this one that you posted in 2017 for quite a while. It was the tipping point for global change. And it was basically, they had a chart on there showing different astrological phenomenon and what we can kind yeah. of expect to be happening during those periods. And yeah. you kind of nailed it. It's, I it's have, crazy how you much know, it lines I, up. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think the timing was slightly out. It's always very difficult to judge timing with astrological influences, but uh, I didn't just use you know astrology to make that chart. I used a bunch of different sources. Um, right. But there are very few things that will give you an accurate time frame. Uh, so if, if I redid it, I would probably just. I think it's the, the structure of what I did was right. It just needs to be slid to the to the right slightly. I think, but uh, but yeah, you know and. and and all I've reflected there is the is the uh, trajectory of train change that Claire Graves described in his research, which is also the the hero's journey pattern from Joseph Campbell's work as well. Amazing! I'm going so to put you... these links in the show notes so people can see what we're talking yeah. about because it, it is yeah, really sure. fascinating when you start looking at this stuff and connecting the dots yeah. and just kind of seeing, wow, this really is an incredible time to be alive. Yeah. I don't know if you saw um, it, but there's there's a little video on my blog site, emanate.net, as well, of uh, sound patterns on a, on a steel plate, uh, cymatics. I don't know if you saw that. Cymatic. Yeah. So, so it basically, basically a guy uh, – it's been on there for, for years uh, on my website. Okay. But it, it's a guy with a metal plate, and he hooks up an oscillator to the metal plate so he can run sound waves through the plate. And then he sprinkles rock salt on the metal plate and he dials the sound frequency from low frequency to high frequency. And as it goes up in the frequency range, it transitions through periods where there are stable standing waves that make what's called a cymatic pattern, like a, a complex pattern that emerges mm -hmm. from the, the chaos. And then as the frequency continues to rise, the salt will become chaotic and the pattern will fall apart. And then as it reaches a new place on the frequency spectrum, it'll reform into standing waves and stability again. And that's exactly the same pattern that we're seeing in human consciousness uh, at an individual oh, and, a, wow. and a social level is things become stable, then they fall apart as we go through a transition and then they become stable again and, and the pattern repeats, yeah. Well, so it's, it's a bit like almost um, <laughs> on a psychedelic journey when you're in that um, chaos phase and you feel like you're never going to come back down again into a normal human being and then you you kind of do that's right <laughs> it's the same thing you know it's just it's the same yeah. change pattern and it's the the more you look the more you'll find it everywhere and it's reflected in so many different things in our lives you know from the from the sun rising and you know peaking at midday and then setting again uh the dark and the night uh the Taoist um Taiji two symbol, the yin yang symbol. The pattern of change is reflected, of course, in, most famously in the I Ching, uh, the book of changes from ancient China, but also in things like the tarot deck. Um, yeah. You know, any mythology you want to look at around the world has records of this process. Yeah. 
talking of the world and emerging as a as a kind of truly global civilization what um what what do you see happening um as this kind of happen as this process unfolds because i know that the idea of having a one world government is definitely unappealing to a lot of people but also yeah. at the same time we do need some means of sensibly coordinating um yeah so what how do you see this this kind of space unfolding in the new paradigm um as we were saying before you know a tool or a system is is not inherently moral in and of itself mm -hmm. it's not you know inherently good or bad from a moral perspective it depends on the person who's wielding it uh, and so as you just indicated you know global government could be a good thing it could be a terrible thing depending on who's actually controlling it mm -hmm. what i'm expecting to see like the I'm expecting that what we're experiencing right now is kind of like dipping your big toe in the water to get a sense of what the temperature is like, you know, and we haven't even entered the water yet. But over the, over the next uh, 10 to 15 years, we're going to be subject to increasingly chaotic disruptions mm -hmm. as parts of the old system collapse and there'll be a time where the old system is collapsing like now, for example, and the new system hasn't stood up enough yet to really take over. Um, well, you know, if you just think about the economic uh, system, global economic system at the moment, we've got the inklings of a new system in blockchain, but it's not really widely understood and it's not accessible to enough people for it to become a dominant global system anytime real soon. Uh, and this is this whole process is going to be repeated across all the different walks of life, the different aspects and disciplines of life, you know, where the old ways really aren't working very well anymore, but we haven't got a decent choice to move to something new yet. Yeah. And I also think that Mother Nature is going to play a very large hand in how this pans out. Uh, I think over the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see some fairly major climate disruption um, which is essentially being driven by space weather from my perspective. Mm, I agree. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I think that will, that will trump a whole lot of stuff. Like, you know, people will be kind of like COVID-19 has, you know, people will be arguing about, oh, we should be doing this and we should be doing that. And it's like, oh my God, look what's coming. Quick, take cover, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I think a lot of human ideas and human endeavors will be somewhat overruled by mother nature stepping in and just because really what's going on from my perspective is not just a shift in human consciousness is a whole systems shift that applies to our entire solar system it's kind of like we're hunkering down in small tribal groups to weather the storm and the more independent we can be locally the better and, and that doesn't mean we we stop you know sharing things and shipping things around the world but there will come periods and, and it might not be you know an entire global period where everything's disrupted but there will be periodic disruptions where certain communities won't be able to you know um, ship things around the world they might just have to hunker down where they are and really weather some uh, extreme climate change or you know whatever it might be i mean i i we're certainly aware of the, the likelihood of pandemics, but, um, you know, I didn't for a moment expect a pandemic to be so disruptive to global life so quickly as this one has been. Yeah, no, it's 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 very interesting how this whole thing has, has panned out. Um, like, what have you heard of that whole event 201 thing? Yeah. It's it's a weird one, isn't it? It's, it's very, very uh, odd. Yeah. Look, there, there, I mean, as you know, I had my own podcast and I said right from the very very beginning that there are a whole lot of things that don't make sense about this this pandemic and the way that people have responded to it. And there are a whole lot of breadcrumbs uh, that suggest foul play. You know, there are, mm. I mean, uh, the mainstream media hasn't really been covering very well, but uh, there's lots of information out there about uh, the Institute of Virology in Wuhan, uh, mm. which is a, a P4, um, you know, lab that studies um, viruses like Ebola and HIV and coronavirus. And there are papers that you can find on the web that have been published by a researcher there 
a female Chinese researcher who's been researching how to alter a coronavirus that originated from a bat and make it more likely to infect a human. Uh, and there was the paper that I found was published in 2015. It mentioned collaboration with uh, the US military, Fort Detrick, which is the bioweapons uh, and chemical warfare center in, the, in Maryland uh, that belongs to the US Army. Um, there, just prior to the outbreak, there were stories again in the mainstream media about a viral research lab in Winnipeg in Canada that was collaborating with the lab in Wuhan, helping them upgrade their security measures because their security wasn't good enough at the lab. There were two Chinese nationals who were traveling backwards and forwards from uh, America to China who were involved in that work who were accused of stealing viruses uh, from the lab at Winnipeg and taking them to China. Uh, one of the former heads of that lab in Winnipeg was in Nairobi speaking at a conference uh, sometime in February, I think it was, and he died unexpectedly while he was there. Uh, and then you had the Harvard professor, I just forget his name, uh, who was also accused by the US government of uh, uh, illegal dealings with the Chinese government. He is a chemist by trade, but he's been working in nanotechnology. And, and he had links to Wuhan as well. So there's a whole lot of breadcrumbs there and whether they mean anything mm. or they lead anything, I can't say, but it certainly warrants investigation. And one of the, I think one of the most interesting things at the moment is what's not being reported by the mainstream media. And that whole story is something that's just not being reported. You know, I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of discrete events there, but um, I, I found one or two reports when I started doing research on this stuff, but you know, no one's talking about it now. No, it's, it's, it seems like the timing of it's very odd because a lot of people are expecting a financial crash this year anyway, without exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't Um, seem like a great smokescreen for that. Absolutely. And you know, it's, I mean, I, 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 um, travel and talk as a futurist as you know and i've i've got a pretty good global network of um people from different walks of life including people who've you know worked in the military and in intelligence circles and it's pretty unanimous amongst my key sources that this wasn't something that was a natural virus outbreak it was you know there was either a mistake or a deliberate release that's that's the most common theory or, or idea hypothesis amongst my contacts uh, simply because of all these breadcrumbs all over the place right yeah that yeah. i was talking about and yeah, very the, odd. and then whether it was premeditated or whether once it started to happen people saw an opportunity to take advantage of it i don't know but i think um, there's certainly been recognition of the possibility of making this into a global level emergency so that emergency legislation can be activated to deal with the economic problems that we're facing. Yeah. And, and you you may have seen that the US Federal Reserve has done exactly that. They have um, activated their emergency legislation because we have a global emergency, which enables them then to uh, print money and do bailouts of, uh, of organizations like they did after the global financial crisis in 2008. Yeah, uh, and the fact you know the fact that Europe was just about to fall over the EU um, and has been sort of staggering for quite a while economically, and then all of a sudden we've got the entire global economy being put on pause. You've got to start to think and say, you know, what is going on here? And I still don't really know whether this was all premeditated and the virus was just a you know a distraction to do it, or whether the virus happened and then various governments and other organizations decided to capitalize on this opportunity to declare an emergency, you know, pump it up in the the media reports. So it really sounded like a proper emergency. And then we can roll out our emergency legislation and, you know, rejig the economy, reboot the economy perhaps for a few years. It it really, it's, it's hard for me to see it as, as, as anything other than a premeditated event or pandemic as some people are calling it because I've watched most of the event to one video now. And it's just so weird how you've got like, um, 
the World Bank, the, no, sorry, the World Economic Forum, the World Bank, the, the American CDC, the Chinese CDC, Johnson and Johnson, all these other big like, corporate and governmental players talking yeah. about what they would do if a novel coronavirus came out. And that's in like October last year. And then like, that's a boots on the ground reality in Wuhan just months later. It's like, wow. Yeah. Now, yeah like, I mean, two, I've got two kind of thoughts on that. Is it? Yeah, carry on, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that the, the event 211 thing is is yeah. an annual event, so it has happened before. Okay. So that you know, that's that's some okay, that's some mitigation is they did it, you know, the previous year and the previous year. It's just a, it's a normal you know right. health emergency kind of exercise. But I mean, the fact that it, they were talking about a coronavirus, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you got to remember too that coronavirus is like a generic term that applies to a whole yeah variety of viruses. It's not just the, the particular COVID nineteen. But sure. but then you've got to look at, um, I mean, there are so many things that don't make sense. You know, there's a long, long list, more than I could mention during this call. Yeah. But Absolutely. you've got things like the fact that um, Bill Gates is all of a sudden resigning from his day job so he can devote his time to convincing us all that we need to buy his vaccines and his digital uh, ID uh, technology that's going to make you scannable. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the fact that Bill Gates happens to be a major funder and influencer of the World Health Organization, uh, and the fact that the World Health Organization issued a directive in the last couple of weeks saying that medical staff should code deaths as COVID-19, even if it's only an assumption and there's no proof through yeah. testing. Now, why the hell would they say that? You know, that doesn't make sense to me at all, unless they want to no. just pump the numbers up and make it look worse, you know, make it look more like an emergency. For, for yeah, it, it does feel it does feel like they're almost monetizing the deaths and using them as like a currency to bring in more and more um, weird policies. But uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. But hopefully it, people that yeah. are listening to this show are switched on and see what's going on. <laughs> yeah. The other rabbit hole, of course, is the you know the long term push that's been going on for the United Nations to become a kind of global government, which is intertwined with uh, the global warming movement. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you if you do your homework and look back to the establishment of the United Nations Environment Program, which is what controls the IPCC, the first head of that organization was a Canadian called Maurice Strong. Who made his money out of fossil fuels and uh, cattle herding, uh, and he was the head of that organisation for quite a few years, the UNEP, and continued to make millions out of fossil fuels and uh, other things, uh, and had strong associations with the Chinese Communist Party. So that's interesting as well. And then, if you read about Maurice Strong, he was eventually sprung, receiving. Uh, a million dollar check from uh, a sheikh in the Middle East, which was something to do with the Iran uh, oil for food program, a check made out oh, to wow. himself, basically. So he was caught taking a bribe. <laughs> he quit his position from the United Nations Environment Program and fled to China and lived out the rest of his life in China and died a few years ago. So there's another kind of interesting connection to the Chinese Communist Party, mm. uh, you know, in the UN. Uh, yeah, there's. What you could um, deduce is that there's been a long-term push to establish a global government by an influential elite, uh, and mm -hmm. you know one of the one of the concepts being floated at the moment, and I'm not saying that this is right or wrong. <laughs> um, you know, is that well, they decided that the whole climate argument wasn't getting the world to deindustrialize and change its ways, so they were looking for something else to uh, shut the factories down. And my goodness, hasn't that happened? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It seems like everything the school climate change protests asked for, they've kind of got it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So. Yeah, it's um, all I can say is that there are so many unusual things about what's going on at the moment is the yeah. story that we're being fed by the mainstream media just doesn't really fit very well. But it's but this but this is also a great time for alternative media, right? As we're seeing this push for censorship on the mainstream platforms like YouTube coming online, we are yeah. seeing high quality yeah. gem, journalism rising to the surface here. So it, it's true. It's, uh, That's right. It's quite interesting to see that playing out. 
Yeah. And this dynamic of having a hidden agenda is very much a characteristic of the scientific industrial mindset. You know, you think of the corporate image thing where you get a professional in to craft your corporate image and make it look all pretty. And it, it's like a screen that hides what's actually going on inside the organization as well. Yeah. Uh, and it has an agenda to it. And that's, that's just like the blueprint for communication, uh, public information in the scientific industrial era. So, um, what we're seeing at the moment is like the, the the extreme expression of this old value set as it desperately attempts to stay dominant globally. And I think that that's that's really the important thing to see this as as kind of the dying gasps of air from the old world and not a reassertion of the old world. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I, I uh, just a really quick story. When I was a rescue helicopter pilot, I had a motorbike, which I bought secondhand, and uh, it, it went. Re- it was only a two fifty cc bike, but it went really, really well and quite fast for a two cc bike. Which I eventually realised was because the engine was getting old, and as combustion engines get old, their parts wear down, and so there's less uh, resistance, less drag on the moving parts in the engine, so they move more efficiently, right? Mm. But as, of course, the parts continue to wear down, eventually it gets to the point where the seal breaks on the piston and the whole thing just doesn't work anymore. But right up to that point before the seal breaks, the engine gets more efficient and faster and faster and faster, and then it just blows. And that's kind of like a, a you know a parable for the uh, industrial paradigm is it's going to yeah. get faster and faster and faster and faster until it blows. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a great that's a great metaphor. I, I like I like the image that puts in your mind. It's very yeah. accurate. So what how do you see like obviously we've we've touched on a lot of this um developmental evolutionary curve stuff and what's going on in the world right now financially. So what what do you think this means for blockchain in the coming years? How do you see that space kind of mapping out now? Well, what's becoming fairly clear is in the short term, I think governments are going to attempt to establish their official blockchains and digital currencies. And mm-hmm. I read one report that said there were at least five countries in Europe which were seriously uh, trialing the use of blockchain, including France, and planning to in- introduce their own digital currencies. And of course, one of the great advantages, advantages of doing that is that you can then do away with paper money uh, which means that there's no black market trade anymore. So there's more uh, visibility of transactions in society and more opportunities to tax those transactions. So it's kind of a, mm-hmm. a very enticing uh, goal for a government. Uh, and I, I think we're going to see you know, some genuine yeah. attempts to do that and quite possibly some successful attempts you know, where countries will introduce digital currencies and will go down that road. Uh, I think... Um, the you know the sort of anarchic intentions behind the invention of, of blockchain aren't going to die though, and I can you know there are lots of reasons why people would still want to use blockchains and digital currencies that aren't controlled by anybody and don't take tax off you. So again, this is this tug of war between the old paradigm and and the new paradigm, uh, and eventually it's inevitable that the new paradigm is going to win because that that always happens. <laughs> Basically, there's, there's never been a, yeah. a time when it hasn't happened. I mean, having said that, there have been periods in history where societies have gone backwards. And, of course, the, the example I gave of Somalia is a classic that I've personally experienced. And so that's not to say that we, we might not take another two steps backwards before we move forwards again. You know, that remains to be seen. Sure. Um, but, but I do think that we're really reaching a critical point where these old paradigm social systems really don't work very well anymore. And the attempts that they're talking about making now to rejig themselves are starting to look a lot like the new paradigm, right? Yeah. Uh, And and so, as I said, you know, it's, it's almost like any attempt that they make to fix up the old paradigm is actually also a step in building the new paradigm really yeah because it's almost building legitimacy for it right it is exactly a lot of people people wouldn't go into crypto until the government says hey we're going into crypto so yeah yeah it's very interesting to see that it's a very interesting time yeah 
So for 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 the for the blockchain space, are there any like projects that you think people should look at that they that you think might be key for kind of facilitating this new new paradigm? Um, look, this 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 is not financial advice. However, no, no, obviously not financial <laughs> advice. No, <laughs> however, the, there's one that really stands out to me at the moment, and that is the Theta platform. Okay. So Theta is a uh, video platform which is decentralized. The idea being that instead of operating through central servers, the videos can be hosted by nodes uh, locally. And when you stream a video, you don't have to stream it from California. You can stream it from someone nearby and, and hopefully get you know better uh, access to, to the data. Um, nice. Th Theta has one of the original YouTube founders on its uh, management board. And when it was launched a couple of years ago, it had really good financial backing from China in particular. Um, oh, wow. And it's operational. So theta.tv uh, is sort of in beta mode at the moment. Um, and they've got people, uh, you know, running theta nodes already out there. I, some of my friends are doing it and earning tokens nice. out of it. Uh, and I really, I mean, given what's happening with YouTube, which is kind of committing suicide by, you know, <laughs> doing the same stuff that Facebook is doing, um, people are looking for, for new options. And I think Theta is going to be a very popular new option. Um, Amazing. I'll definitely the, have a closer look at that. Yeah, T-H-E-T-A. And Holochain. Holochain. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of uh, projects out there that have kind of tried to copy to some extent what, uh, Ethereum did uh, mm -hmm. in 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 sort of building platforms that allow people to build applications on their platform. So like with a, a sort of a vertical aspect to them in that respect. Um, mm. Which which one's going to succeed? I'm not sure. To be really honest with you, uh, mm. I don't know enough about Holochain or where it's at to really to comment on it. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of it, uh, and yeah. I know that it. I know for a fact because a friend of mine was a major investor in uh, the tokens that it was kind of struggling early on trying to keep itself going financially. I don't know where it's at mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, yeah, and there I are others. I think we're doing like, the closed alpha now because I, I, I got in on the ICO for that one and yeah, okay, ended up right. buying one of those holo ports to kind of do the okay. testing. But yeah, yeah I think they've, they've got some big challenges on that on that project, I think, because it's yeah. not a blockchain. It's something totally different. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 As you say, there you know, there are some projects out there which are not technically not exactly blockchain. There are other variations on that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very yeah. early days, you know. It, it's I, I guess we just have to be patient and wait and see which one of these gets traction. And Theta is one of the few that I see out there that actually is getting traction and seems to have a very sound operational concept at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's that's great to hear. I'm I'm always curious to hear about these decentralized platforms that are coming online and actually being functional. Like, yeah, I did enjoy the the Steemit platform um, for blogging because that had some good quality content on there. But yeah. they had the whole issue recently where somebody tried to buy it and then they hard forked onto a new platform, which in many ways is cool because it's showing how the communities can't be bought in this space. But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there were, you know, lots of noble intentions in the birth of blockchain. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, let's hope that they can be fulfilled in terms of producing a, a, a new economic system that can scale globally and is very difficult to corrupt, if not impossible. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's probably a good place to, uh, to, end this one because um obviously i don't want to take any more of your time but um before we part i would like to just uh give you a chance to let people know where they can find you and if you have any practical tips or parting words for navigating the crazy times that we're in then uh, feel free to share them yeah sure um in terms of the tips i think the most important thing at the moment is having some sort of a regular practice meditational practice and ideally something that's not simply meditational but in sort of integrates mind body spirit um, for me my 
personal practice is uh, uh, Kung Fu, the tr old traditional Kung Fu system, which is like an overnight meditation that's that's moving. No. Um, and the reason I say that is because we are beings of frequency and we're living on a planet whose frequency is shifting right at the moment. So one of the measures of that is the Schumann resonance, which you can find uh, reported live online. And the Schumann resonance used to sit around 7.8 hertz quite consistently, but it's been increasing for the last couple of years and sometimes spiking up to about 99 hertz periodically, sometimes sitting consistently at you know 20 or 30 hertz. Mm -hmm. And we need to keep pace with the changing frequency of our planet by taking time to slow down and connect with the planet energetically and allow that frequency to filter through our bodies. And, uh, you know, if we if we don't keep in step with those frequency changes, then we, we're going to find our well-being increasingly disrupted, I believe. Uh, and that's also tied into the, you know, the cosmic radiation aspect of things as well. Um, as, we, as we move to these higher layers of consciousness described in Claire Graves' research, my understanding is that our, our energetic makeup is changing as well. Uh, moving towards what has been called in new age circles the activation of the light body and uh, I've, I've come across some quite concrete information about that shift in our subtle energy structure through the work of a japanese american guy called dr Niki osanki uh, who works from a chinese medicine paradigm using something that he calls esoteric acupuncture and he's done uh, he's written seven books describing the emergence of this new subtle energy structure in the body which is laid over the top of the existing chakras and energy meridians uh, and so that's that's also a, wow. a central focus of my uh, interest at the moment as well so the, you know the daily practice is really the number one big recommendation but and and next to that i would say uh, build resilient communities you know get to know your local people pull your resources, pull your knowledge and your intelligence and start building a resilient local community that can be as self-sufficient as possible um, to, to sort of weather what's coming in terms of disruption. Uh, in, Beautiful, in term, Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, in terms of finding me, uh, I have a, a non-profit change agency which is at the web address org. That stands for the Agency for Advanced Development of Integrative Intelligence. And that's that's my sort of central uh, activity at the moment. I've got a blog site called emanate.net, E-M-A-N, sorry, E-M-A-N-8, the number eight, uh, just as a figure, mm -hmm. .net. Uh, I do a weekly podcast called Future Sense, and you'll find links on the rd.org website to that podcast. You can also listen to the podcast on that site as well. Uh, and uh, and I do I work part time as a volunteer for psychedelic research in science and medicine here in Australia, which is a non profit research organisation, and we're currently researching psilocybin to treat um, depression and anxiety in terminally ill patients. Uh, and Amazing. you can find find that at prismprism.org.au. Wonderful man, that's. Uh... That's a great, I, I'm really, really hyped that we could have this conversation today. And I hope everybody who's listening um, enjoys checking out your blog and your podcasts and anything else you're putting out over the coming months and years. Thanks, Howard. Much appreciated. It's been great to have a chat, mate.